When Josh invited me to be a part of this service, he was quick to state that he did not expect a sermon from me, but instead an essay. And for me, that is a great gift. The task of writing is being invited to do something that's deeply life-giving to me. Writing always seems to bring order to the jumbled thoughts in my mind, and here, with fingers poised over computer keys, I regularly meet with the Holy Spirit. While writing this has been a both uh, reflective and cathartic exercise, it was indeed life-giving and easy. Sharing it in all vulnerability is quite difficult. I've been trying to get out of this all week, <laughs> but Josh is making me do this. <laughs> But that is the very thing I must do. Repentance is an active turning away from sin and to God. It's both a deletion and an addition. Deleting the old ways, adding a new God-centered practice. If stealing is your thing, true repentance would be to stop stealing and start a practice of generosity. So as I'm faithful to the work of the Spirit in me to cease my cyclic, performance-driven ways of achievement and polished perfection... I'm called to move into a place of vulnerability and authenticity. And I pray that the freedom granted to me may be freedom transcribed to you. That the grace woven throughout my story may point to the author and perfecter who wants to do the same for you. Where to start? It may seem quite logical to start where all testimonies begin, at the beginning. But that would be too linear. And honestly, this journey has been anything but linear. Instead of picturing an inclined slope, I want to paint a picture that resembles a heart rhythm, normal sinus rhythm, if you will. There's peaks and dips, victories and defeats. And how beautiful, the rhythm of life and the rhythm of our hearts are a pattern of ups and downs. And this is God's perfect design. Life is not a cakewalk, nor is it a trudge through the mud. It is a beautiful mosaic of hardship and beauty, harmony and dissonance, joy and sorrow, victories and struggles. But somewhere along this rhythm, I decided there was no place for struggles in my life. I wanted smooth sailing. But do you know what we call that? Flatlining. And that is death. When we fully embrace God's design for our lives, accepting both our strengths and our weaknesses, we can fully live. So that's where I guess I'll start, when I realized that I was sleepwalking through life. Insomnia was the mainstay at this point in my life. Night after night provided only fits of sleep, and all my previously successful sleeping hacks were failing. My mind seemed to be missing that sleep mode setting and would race at all hours of the day. As you can imagine, my quality of life was declining, and I decided it was time to find myself in the counselor's office. As I began to neatly unpack my mind, as one would unpack a meticulously organized suitcase, my counselor paused and noticed that I was sad. This messed with my orderly unpacking, as I at first denied this possibility. I was not sad. In fact, I was overall pretty unemotional. Tears hardly adorned my eyelids, and I had long worn this as a badge of honor. For the majority of my life, I had conditioned myself to shut down all emotions, to polish and perfect my strengths, and to eradicate all weaknesses. So in college, when the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that my life verse was to be 2 Corinthians 12.9, my powers made perfect in weakness, I was very resistant. 
Is there a way, Lord, that we could just both be strong? Is there a verse that states that my power is made perfect in strength? Because I think you have the wrong guy. But the Holy Spirit was persistent, and I was extremely reluctant. Paul may want to boast about his weaknesses, but I prefer to highlight my resume. And that's how I would live, perfecting my perfections, ignoring my weaknesses, and life became hollow, monotone, linear, and dry. My resume got longer, valedictorian, co-captain of the basketball team. I worked two to three jobs of holding leadership positions, but all that did was earn me respect. No longer did it matter what filled me with joy or made my heart break. Life was just a series of checkboxes to be checked, levels to master, two-dimensional Mario, running along bricks, punching coins, level up, rinse, repeat, no highs, no lows, just forward motion. I was not living. I was sleepwalking. I saw the problem. I relentlessly demanded perfection of myself and would crumble when certain unrealistic standards were not met. This well-knit way of life was so artistically strung that it felt impossible to find that strand to tug that would unravel it all, until the Holy Spirit revealed to me that fear was the undercurrent of it all. The string that if pulled would unravel my perfectly curated facade. Fear of man, fear of failure, fear of the unknown kept me from a fully vibrant life that beat out of the rhythm of God's perfect design, the rhythm of grace. And as I indicated in my introduction, I'm not sharing this story in a linear timeline of events. I'm prone to jump around as healing is not always this sequential timeline of events, but rather the lacing together of dots. If you imagine a dot-to-dot picture, when you look at it at first, it's confusing at best, but once all the dots are traced and um, put together, Um, In perfect harmony, they create an artistic masterpiece. Well, at least in comparison to my stick people. And so I want to talk about a nasty little lie that I let wreak havoc in the garden of my mind. It was the lie that I was not enough. In my mind, there was always someone more deserving, better equipped, or more prepared than I. Sound familiar? Turn with me to Exodus 4, um, verses 10 through 13. God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and he's calling him to the great task of leading his people out of slavery. Amazing God moment. He encounters God. He hears him clearly. God is explicitly telling Moses his plan for his life. But check out Moses' response in verse 10. But Moses said, No, Lord, don't send me. I have never been a good speaker, and I haven't become one since you began to speak to me. I am a poor speaker, slow and hesitant. The Lord said to him, Who gives man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight and makes him blind? It is I, the Lord. Now go. I will help you to speak, and I will tell you what to say. But Moses responded, No, Lord. Please send someone else. Moses, God said he'll personally help you. Why are you insistently asking for someone else to go? It's easy to read these Bible stories, even put ourselves in the main character's shoes and still respond, I would never. This is a perfect 2 Corinthians 12.9 moment. If only Moses had the New Testament to read to help him realize that God does his best work in the midst of our weakness. It's poetic. It's beautiful. 
It keeps the glory in the right place. But here I sat with a glaring opposition in my orthodoxy, what I believed, and my orthopraxy, what I practiced. I believe that God calls us to be weak. I believe that we allow the most room for him to move and to be glorified when we bring our whole selves, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to him. I believed, I believed, I believed, but I still demanded to be perfect. In the beginning of this pastoral transition, a few of you had asked me how you can be praying for me, and you all received the same sincere answer. Pray that I learn grace. To some, you may have wondered why this goody-two-shoes need to learn about grace. But I believed that it was my goody-two-shoed nature that made me need to learn it all the more. Who is able to better understand and receive unconditional love? He who has sinned much or little. By artfully hiding those pieces in myself that I deemed unworthy, I never put them in the light of love. For a time, the prayers for living under the law of grace seemed to take a backseat as life just got busy. In this time, I spent about a month's worth of Sabbaths dissecting and meditating on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Let's take a look together. I want to take time to really extrapolate from this rich passage on love. Um, so if you go to Ephesians 3, we're going to just start with verses 14 and 15. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. When I read that Paul is bowing his knees, it fills me with passion. This is not a pithy request unto God. This is something he is asking for in all humility and sincerity. This is important to Paul, and it should be important to us. I also notice that Paul is positioning God accurately, reminding the reader who it is that Paul is laying these requests upon. Our Father, the one who created us with love and with care. Verse 16 says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This Father, our God, is almighty God of abundance and magnificence, Lord over all, the God of thundering and lightning. He is rich in glory, completely loaded, and he is more than able to strengthen us with his power. He is fortifying us to withstand by his supernatural divine might. This is through his spirit within us. It's not through determination, self-control, trying hard, or logically concluding. It is a deep work within that cannot be achieved outside of the working of his Holy Spirit. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. It is the result of this work of the Spirit that Christ can dwell or live in us. It is again through faith, not by our own working. Faith, as defined in Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We can be convinced and assured that when we invite Christ in, Christ lives within us and is strengthening us by his Spirit. And as he does, we are being rooted and grounded in love. These are gardening terms. The roots are the foundation of a plant. It is a great source of strength, stability, and nourishment. 
So it is saying that we are to be established, grounded, centered, strengthened, and upheld and nourished by love. Love is what stabilizes us and primes us for growth. God himself is love. As he dwells in our hearts, he is grounding us in himself. Verses 18 and 19 say, So that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. All of the aforementioned verses are setting the groundwork for the very thing that brought Paul to his knees. And it was so that we could fully understand the love God has for us. Paul asked that we may have strength to comprehend it. And it takes strength because there is a war waged on our minds and our hearts. Yet in Christ, we have strength to overcome and to understand. We show up to God with our weakness and he upholds us with his strength. And it all circles around love. Love. Oh, that we may fully understand how God loves us. Satan tries tirelessly to keep us under the suffocating reign of fear. And as long as we live under the dominion of fear, we fail to walk freely under the laws of grace. We are unable to fully let ourselves be overcome by the love of Christ, the love that sent him to die for you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I had not been perfected in love. And there lay the bridge that crossed over the gap between the dominion of fear and the freedom of grace. Love bridged the gap. To be loved unconditionally is to be fully known and fully loved. And when that love is received and imbibed, fear goes running. Suddenly, it doesn't matter if we measure up, if we're impressive, if we're doing it all right, because his love soaks into, permeates, breathes life into every nook and cranny of our being. We are strengthened by him, filled with his very being, and transformed. There, in the reception of love, we are freed by an abundance of grace that lavishly spills out into every area of our life. So Sabbath after Sabbath, I meditated on this powerful scripture on love. And when I had that apocalypsis moment of divine revelation, that moment when I realized that what I needed was to receive God's personalized, overwhelming love for me, I noticed that there was this song playing in the background with the refrain, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. God breathed those words into me in that moment. It was as if he was grabbing my arms and shaking me and shouting, you're enough. Stop performing and rest in me. Ground your being in the reality of my love and there you will find grace. Recently, an author I respect posted a simple quote that read, you are enough in the same way that a loaf of bread and fish was enough. What we bring to the table, no matter how minuscule it might feel, is enough. When coupled with the miraculous God of abundance, 
All that we are is more than enough. We offer all that we are and all that we have, and he lavishly pours his grace and makes our mere loaves and fish a feast. I am enough, and you are enough. He created us with care, and he held us in his hands, looking down with a fatherly glowing pride and exclaimed, You are very good. Have you ever noticed in Genesis that when God is creating everything, he says, it is good. But when he created man, he said, it is very good. It is when we receive those words of affirmation from our perfect heavenly father that we can feel that transformative love that pushes us into the law of grace. As I allowed myself to let those words bathe over me, laying all of me before my creator, who again and again exclaimed that I was enough and very good. I was learning what it meant to live in grace. As much as I want to end on this gleaming high note, I cannot. I love the idea of destinations and polished fairy tale endings, but that's not quite how life always works. Yes, I believe that God continually makes us more and more into his likeness. But I also believe that the deep work of transformation is never fully finished. We are ever always in process, ever always being refined more and more into his likeness. And to be honest, I'm not fully living in the realm of grace. There are days that I am, and there are days where I teeter between the bounds of my old self and the bounds of grace. Days where I own and name my weakness without apology or explanation, and days where my weakness suffocates and cripples me. Days where I show up just as I am, and days where I'm try ah, tirelessly trying to prove that I'm worthy. I'm still in process, still learning how to hold up both my successes and my failures and let love encompass it all. The temptation to have accolades next to my name is strong, and the tendency to define myself by what I can do is still there, but not every day, not every moment. And I'm learning there's grace for that too. And when I, in a moment of alertness, come before God and say, whoops, I've been leaning on my own sufficiency again, haven't I? Can we start over? We pick up, dust off, and begin again. It's a spiritual practice, and boy, am I practicing. Great teachers will embrace a student's failures and celebrate progress over mastery. And God is an amazing teacher. He is celebrating as I stumble again and again, but keep getting back up and saying, let's try that again. And I'm learning to trust that the best days are neither good nor bad, but holy. It is the days that I lay down my try-hard way of life and acknowledge him in all my ways, knowing that whether I've sailed through my day with perfect patience or stumbled through my day with selfish frustration, when I look up into the eyes of my Father, his eyes are always gentle, always full of love. God is so faithful. He answered my prayer to understand how to walk in grace. And my prayer for you that brings me to my knees is the same, that you may comprehend with all the saints the deep love of your Father.